All you're looking in the dark in the night sky And you only wears God in your nightlife And you're looking at the church in the night sky Wondering why the dogs gonna say God, yeah, I feel like I'm uh, welcome to God is Open. This is the debate after show. We'll talk a little bit about the debate. We could probably rewatch some of it. It's uh, pretty interesting, but uh, I will just talk through basically what my strategy was, uh, what my preparation was. We'll talk about some resources that I put together and uh, just kind of uh, see what's happening. And we'll see who comes on. Maybe we can invite people to uh, hang out. Let's see, I will now present my screen. We can take a look at, let's see, entire screen. We'll look at uh, our Bible verses over here. Isaiah 40, the Isaiah 40 through 48 passage. That's extremely important to understand what's going on in Deutero Isaiah, to understand um, what the, the ins and outs, the intricacies, what's being described, why it's being described, the audience and things of that nature. It comes up all the time. It, it's typically, I'm surprised it wasn't used as one of Jonathan Singleton's proof texts, but um, it was it was thrown out in some sort of questions and I had prepared a response. And maybe, maybe the fact that I had a whole debate on that topic is maybe why they left it alone. I don't know, but uh, that is a possibility. But let's go look at my outline. So I built an outline and my strategy was number one, to frame the debate. And so framing the debate is what is the debate about? What's the interaction going to be about? What's going to make or break the debate? And uh, I did I did send this to I sent this to Singleton and Marlin before the debate. This is what open theism is, and this is what I'm going to defend. And open theism being the denial of classical theism. And so you got all the little attributes. You'll see these, these descriptions in systematic theology texts, but you're not going to find them in debates because typically people want to do this moat and Bailey thing uh, where they make claims like, oh, the Bible teaches omniscience. Um, but what they're actually talking about is this very specific type of omniscience that that interacts with their metaphysics. And that's that's not actually supported by the text. So it's very important very early in the debate to frame the debate realistically as this is what your omniscience actually states. And so if your omniscience is of any other kind, if it's a gained or dependent omniscience, uh, this this is an after show debate. Mark asks, uh, I just showed up. Can someone tell me what the topic is? This is an after debate show. I just had a debate with Jonathan Singleton. And the question was, is open theism biblical? And so we're looking at my opening statement right here. I have it uh, written out. I, I practiced it maybe, I don't know, five times. You kind of want to get smooth with it because uh, I, I've done it before where I've done speeches and only have like one read through and it, it doesn't flow naturally. It, it, it's kind of, you kind of want to know where you're going with speeches. At one time I was uh, tasked in one of my classes to come up with like this 10 minute speech and I'd never practice it whatsoever. And it ended up being like, like a minute. And so I was like, oh man, I still passed the class. So that's, that's fine. But uh, it was like a realization that you do need to start timing things out and getting a realistic feel to how long things are going to last. And I timed everything out so that um, it would be maybe 30 seconds less than what was actually 
uh, timed out because when you're reading and going through a debate, maybe you might read slower. Maybe you might add emphasis places. Maybe there might be maybe coughs or hiccups or something like that. So you don't want to cut it too close to the end. And you want to be able to give out your concluding statement, which should, should be impactful. It should be something they could take away with, walk away with. And if you're, if you're cut out for time, if the time is decreasing too rapidly, you're not going to be able to do that. It's going to, it's going to severely hinder your debate. So make sure that your outline actually is timed appropriately to get that. And so <laughs> the comment section was a dumpster fire of Calvinists scrambling for piety points. Uh, Jeff writes, uh, I did try to go look at the comments and scroll back through them to see how far back I could get because I wasn't watching the comments at all during the debate because Marlon doesn't use StreamYard. He uses some other software that doesn't have that scrolling text where you can just reference it pretty easily. And so I'm sure it was a dumpster fire and it typically is. A PMA master says, oh, those bad open theists claiming God did cause the fall to bring about the cross. That was actually pretty interesting in the cross-examination. I get I got a weird question from Jonathan Singleton about God not knowing some sort of feature in free will. And it's like, I, I don't know exactly what this question means or is getting at. It sounds like Platonistic categories. It sounds like categories in which like everyone works like a blueprint. And so uh, all the contingencies are involved in that blueprint. And I just, I, I just, I don't think the Bible's talking in those categories. So I think it's categorically incorrect. So when something's categorically wrong, that means it's, it's off the reservation. It's not even talking about a same subject. It doesn't mean it's just utterly and deniably false. More than that, it's not even in the same realm of thought process. It's categorically wrong. Let's see. Jonathan didn't sound like a Calvinist at all. In fact, he sounded more like an open theist in regards to most things. PMA master writes, yeah, which is actually funny because I did send him the basic definition of, of open theism being the denial of classical omniscience. He acknowledged that this was the case. And then in his opening statement, he starts saying very open theistic sounding things. I think, I think uh, he's he's probably good-hearted from this interaction, and he probably doesn't understand the implications of the theology he's mimicking to the extent that he understands the metaphysics. He doesn't understand what pure simplicity, pure actuality, aseity, what all, that all involves. And so he, he talks in open theistic categories and thinks he can still affirm Calvinistic or classical theist values which they just don't jive. And so that's why throughout this debate, I emphasized over and over again, just the basic definition of open theism. And I, I had a, that long line that I, I will say, I will continue to say, I will always say that classical omniscience states that God has innate, ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, unfalsifiable knowledge of all propositions, past, present, and future. And I asked him in the cross-examination, it's, it's his time to shine. I said, it's, it's not a scripted question because it's it's so open-ended that the audience could see that I'm making a good faith effort to deal with his best proof text. I asked him, what's your best proof text for God having this type of knowledge? And his best proof text was in Daniel, like Daniel 11, Daniel 12, about God saying certain things are going to happen in the future, right? 
And so I, I tried to question him on that. Okay, does that prove that God has innate knowledge? Because I don't, I don't see anything in there about God having innate knowledge. Does it mean God have has ungenerated knowledge? I, I don't see anything in there about God having ungenerated knowledge. It like nothing, nothing about that proves this category of omniscience that he has. And this was his best proof text. So I, I think that demonstrates to everyone that the Bible just does not speak in these categories. It does not accept these categories. These these are not claims the biblical authors. They're not even aware of it. They're not interacting with these ideas because it's not within their data set with which to interact. They don't understand Platonism. They've never been exposed to Platonism. They're not interacting with Platonists. They're, they're not talking in these categories. Biblical authors do not have these categories in their data set. So it's like, I love that you had the spinning InfoWars cube in, in the intro content. And that, that's Kanye, uh, my bro, Kanye, who I love love very dearly. Jeff says, I'm pretty sure technically correct is equivalent to meaningless. Jonathan's responses to Jesus could call the 10,000 angels. And I guess that's part of the thing I tried to demonstrate. And uh, I had two documents that I used. I had the outline. The outline had basically my opening statement then a response statement with some red text based on what I think he might argue and what and what he I, I overrode the red text when he didn't argue certain things. But it was it was set up to be like a variable based if he's like focusing on a moralistic fallacy, then I'd focus on that. One thing that I wish I did get to that I didn't get to was pointing out how prophecy works and how John the Baptist states that God's more innovative than us. And so God can fulfill prophecy in ways that we don't expect. He can make new children of Israel from the rocks. And, and I was a little pressed for time because of the things he was saying. I wanted to kind of respond to those things and it kind of forced my ending out. But if I did get that line in, then just like uh, my previous debate, I'd be able to use that over and over when he says, how could God make this prophecy come true? Yeah, God can make new children of a Abraham from the rocks. He's innovative. He's creative. He's capable of doing things. Even if we don't know a way that God can accomplish things, God has options. God's smarter than us. I don't I don't have to come up with the reasons how God has to do things. God comes up with those reasons. PMA says, uh, yeah, if I were cynical, I would say that he took the position closest to open theism, possibly to make his position appear more palatable. I, I, I don't think that he's operating in bad faith. It didn't seem to me that he's actually internalized and understood the Platonist metaphysical system that a lot of his claims are based on. And so I would chalk it up to not malfeasance, but probably ignorance or naivety. He doesn't understand what he's dealing with. He's, he's playing with a metaphysical fire that he doesn't understand. And so soft NT writes, if God knows one thing about the future, then God knows everything about the future. Okay. So I am a little sympathetic to this belief because the type of knowledge that they want God to have is unfalsifiable knowledge. And so that's why one of the adjectives describing the type of knowledge that they ascribe to God is unfalsifiable. Because if God can say things are going to happen that don't come true, then that defeats every single time they say, oh, God said this thing, so it must have to come true. No, I, I actually listed off in my opening statement, I listed off maybe five, 
to 10 things that God said would happen that didn't happen. God said these elders in uh, in Egypt, the elders of Israel, they're going to go confront Pharaoh with you. They never did. They didn't, they didn't go with, they didn't want anything to do with Moses. They, they didn't like Moses. Moses was, God says, you're going to be my spokesman. Moses refuses. God appoints Aaron and said, God, God says something's going to happen. It doesn't happen. God says Israel's going to be, remain faithful to me because Abraham's going to teach them about me. They, they don't remain faithful. That doesn't materialize. God, God makes decisions based off of these things that don't materialize. He expects things that, that doesn't happen. Like, like this, this, this line here, God still wants a relationship with mankind. This time he tries using a single family whom he can act as his priest nation. Did that materialize? It doesn't seem to materialize. There's no priest nation. Jesus, Jesus had to come in and uh, try to reform Israel. And then when that fails, the Gentiles have to be grafted in a whole new people uh, people who are not my people now called my people. Remember that Paul repurposes Hosea in order to make the case that now the Gentiles are the people because the Jews just weren't working out. He, uh, God's plans are thwarted and he has to innovate new means of accomplishing those plans. And it happens throughout the Bible. So one of the questions that I did want to ask him that I didn't get a chance to in the cross-examination was how many times in my opening statement do I point out times God said something's going to happen and then that thing doesn't happen? Like that, it's not a question about how many times he thinks that it's not going to happen. It's a question about what I said to see if he's paying attention. And it gets him to affirm that I don't think that it's this unfalsifiable knowledge. But if it is the unfalsifiable knowledge that they're talking about, God knowing one future proposition, and since all propositions are in relation to all other propositions that exist, God would have to have that type of knowledge. If, it, if it's a settled future in the way that Platonists consider things settled, if it's epistemological, uh, I don't know, whatever, if it's closed, epistemologically closed, something like that. Um, then all other facts existing at the exact same time have to be in their specific places that, as well. But I think these are Platonistic categories. It's not the category of knowledge that we find in the Bible. God says, I'm going to do something. I have certainty I'm going to do it. And we can have certainty in it, but it's not, it's not like a set fact that exists in the future. It's still falsifiable knowledge. So Jeff says, military commanders can plan the end from the beginning, backwards planning, but God can't plan like this unless he knows the future because he determined it. Yeah, and I don't even think that Daniel was uh, written at that time. I take take the Neil Short view that this, and uh, John Golden Gay, Golden Gay view, that this is, uh, this is, the type of literature this, this, this is, is it's basically, revelation type literature it's apocalyptic and uh, that type of literature is often written under pseudonyms and so john golden gay points out in his word biblical commentary that uh, throughout the text the the events are fairly accurate until you get to like verse 40 and then the narrative falls apart when you're looking at uh, the historical outcomes and the narrative gets a little bit more vague and so you could say, hey, this is probably when about it's written because after this point, it just it's it's kind of loose and it doesn't doesn't really materialize. But that's not a point that I argued in the debate. And one thing that I tried to stress throughout the debate 
is if I'm wrong about one thing, it's like I, I'm not the only open theist commenting on Daniel, Daniel 11, or anything like that. Even if I'm wrong about this one interpretation, doesn't mean open theism is not biblical. There's there's alternative solutions. And so I did have a line that I struck from my rebuttal. So if he was, if his plan, I didn't know what his initial opening was going to be about. It could have been all about going through my prior works and arguing with me on particular verses. In that case, my rebuttal would have been a simple statement saying, yeah, okay, this, this debate's not about what I believe, as I pointed out in my opening. This debate's about, is open theism biblical? And for every verse you're quoting, there's probably 12 different open theist views. And so refuting my views specifically doesn't mean open theism is not biblical. And then I would have had the whole response listed out in which I talk about logical fallacies. But he didn't do that. And so it's probably a good move of his not to do that because then I could have just hand waved his entire opening. He actually dealt with some things that maybe might be a little bit more substantive. So it says, Adam says, it seems to be what they all think. It's like they can't make any distinction between one thing and everything. Right. If the type of knowledge that they believe in mandates it, that's why it's very good to early in a debate or discussion frame what knowledge actually is. There is falsifiable knowledge. There is times that God expects things to happen that do not materialize. And so God knows something will happen and then that thing doesn't happen. Falsifiable knowledge. And if that type of knowledge exists, then all their claims about how this knowledge must mean their metaphysics, all those fall flat because it's not the Platonistic knowledge. It's not like there's a truth value on a proposition that flips up and down. It's rather, rather it's an abstract truth. Like, uh, yeah, Jesus is going to uh, die through the crucifixion. Yep, that that that's true, but it's not a switch that goes up and down. It can be subverted if Jesus decides to pray for 12 legions of angels to save him. If Jesus prays to God and doesn't say, not my will, but yours be done, he says, hey, please just use my will more than your will. They have different wills. They have different desires uh, that that uh, there's there's hierarchy. You have to prioritize them. If he says, prioritize my will, please God, God might say, okay, we're going to subvert the crucifixion. So even though it's like a certain event, it's it's still falsifiable. That's kind of what I was trying to get at with my one statement. I added it in as I was hearing him talk. I added in um, the, the opening statement to my rebuttal going over the time that God switched a unilateral promise. He switched it to a conditional promise. We could go scroll down to it real quick. And so what this demonstrates is that it wasn't always uh, conditional. Yeah, that, that, that's their claim. Everything that doesn't materialize always was conditional. This is the one case they can't claim it because it's being switched to a conditional in the very text. And so they, they don't get the same outs that they get normally. I'll scroll down to it. Uh, P PMA master says, I wanted you to hammer him more on this notion that God thought he would do a thing and the legitimacy of that thought in relation to his supposed classical theism. Yeah. So it's uh, some, you got prioritized in the debates and, uh, just didn't have the chance to do that at any certain point. Right. So you kind of prioritize your responses and, uh, if debates are going well and there's goodwill, you also don't want to sacrifice that goodwill by being needlessly hostile as well. You don't want to 
create a bad situation in which there's actually legitimately some give and take where we're acknowledging each other's points, which is not going to happen in a James White debate. In a James White debate, it's give no ground, take no prisoners, treat the other person like absolute crud. And you saw that in the Tim Stratton debate in which Tim Stratton is like, like, like licking his shoes, like, oh, I love you so much, James White. You do so many good things. And James White was just treating him like dirt. Those types of debates, yeah, no holds, no holds. Just just destroy them, insult them, make them feel pain, uh, pull them off their high horse. Those are bad, bad human beings. But you, just, you don't want to do that to someone who actually wants to interact, right? So I'm still scrolling down. That's, that's the opening. So I, I added this last minute as I was hearing him talk because rebuttal you don't know exactly what you're going to rebut until you hear their opening statement and you just got a little bit of time to put some things together so first samuel 230 therefore the lord declares i promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever but now the lord declares far be it from me for those who honor me i will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed i actually had this set up in my questions so that I had a list of questions. You don't know how long 20 minutes are going to go for your questions. And so is is down it was uh, down prioritized. If you would have answered all the questions a lot faster like is there a prepositional phrase that explains why God tests? If he just said, "Yeah," and it's this prepositional phrase, we could just moved on. But he liked to give long responses to like simple questions and I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to preemptively just and so I had to kind of re-ask him. It's like, so do you think there is a prepositional phrase in that sentence that explains why that modifies the testing? And because I just want him to admit it. It's it's not like what does the text mean? It's just, we're just at the stage. What does the text? What does it say? Right? Uh, did the Potter finish what he originally attempted to do? Just just what does the parable say? You know, we could talk about interpretation later, but what does that say? So you see, I prioritized the Exodus claim that originally was a question one because the Exodus 32 proofed text, it has, has the benefit of multiple sources of hindsight. You have Exodus 32 itself that talks through everything that's going on. It's pretty self-evident, but then you could ask them very specific questions about go, what's going on there. And depending on their answer, they're going to contradict future commentators in the Bible talking about that same text. And so this is a very famous event. It's very big in Israel's history. They care a lot about it. And so they talk a lot about it. And every single person who talks about it throughout the Bible always does so in an open theistic sense. They, they all think that Moses was there and Moses convinced God. Moses was the reason God didn't destroy Israel and Moses did it through actually citing arguments that affected God. And Jonathan Singleton did, he did pick up on this and he was able to correctly answer that there was an argument that was presented, which was the deciding factor in God's decision. And so I thought that was actually really funny. It's, it's not like he sat back and he processed how that's going to work in his system, but some, some open theists don't like this either. Uh, that uh, William... Taylor Scott guy, he really hates me talking about Exodus 32 because if God is convinced by reasons that a man offers, that doesn't 
afford him this type of omniscience in which God has at the forefront of his mind all arguments eternally in like one simple present reality. Uh, William, whatever, he'll say that God does learn as time goes on, but it's still a type of platonic simple knowledge, a knowledge that doesn't have priorities in God's mind. And so you can't bring something to God's attention. So you can't make arguments and God say, oh, that's a pretty convincing argument. Let's accept that argument. It doesn't work with that type of knowledge. So open theists are sometimes guilty of this type of knowledge category as well. Right. But God, God is convinced and he is convinced through reasoning. He is convinced through Moses. Moses is able to, Moses thinks he could convince God and that's what happens. So I think John Singleton, this is idol killer. This is Warren. John Singleton affirmed numerous open theist positions while arguing against it. Weird. I tried to point that out. He kept saying God thinks about things. God makes decisions. God responds to human actions. God considers what human beings are doing. All that's open theism. It's like, welcome back to the fold, John Singleton. You're an open theist. You don't believe in this type of classical omniscience that I've already defined that we've already went through multiple times. You're saying over and over ideas and sentences and verses that contradict what your claims are, what classical omniscience states about God. You're an open theist. And so maybe, maybe he's, he might reconsider his position and say, Hey, maybe I am a little bit of open theist. With an ineffable God, this is the provisional provisionist perspective and so this is uh probably drew mcleod of the clan mcleod with an ineffable god no one can say anything without contradicting classical theism yeah so in it god's ineffable and so all bible talk about god is baby talk i, I got a baby up there talking right now let me hear i got a baby up there no you're not a baby yeah, that was a very manly voice a big kid but uh, he he literally said this is softity. He literally said that God can change what He's going to do, which implies that God planned to do something that He never did. Yeah, they, they say, oh, this is conditional. Well, what does conditional mean? If God has this type of ungenerated, innate, non-discursive, uh, non-dependent knowledge, how can anything be conditional? Right? That that creates a condition creates dependencies. It violates simplicity. It violates being pure actuality. It violates God having an unchanging and independent knowledge set. God's knowledge becomes dependent. God is dependent on the world in, in the Platonistic categories. Again, these are not biblical categories. The biblical authors don't argue like this. They don't interact with these, these, uh, these ideas. They don't interact with these metaphysics. It's just not part of their vocabulary. He really wanted me to affirm some sort of weird vocabulary about creation and free will. And it's just, they're, I, they're not biblical categories. That's It's not what the Bible authors thought like, right? They could be wrong. The biblical authors could be wrong. And Singleton could be right about these categories existing. But it's not biblical. These are not biblical ideas. They're not biblical categories. Drew, you don't get piety points. This is Jeff. Without saying something pious, you have to, yeah, they, they have to say something. Yeah. So you got a lot of uh, false piety. Like, um, yeah, your view demeans God and your view 
uh, would make me sad if it's true. And so your view is false. It's like, okay, I, I guess that's an argument. Pro no, it's, it's not actually an argument, but I guess that's an argument. My view makes you sad. I guess, I, I guess that means my view is false. I don't know. How can you say something like that? PMA writes, I would never say something like that because my systematic is definitely more correct and I'm not posturing. Yeah, so it is kind of controversial, some of the things that I said in the cross-examination. A lot of open theists won't say that God takes responsibility for some of the evil in the world or that God has some sort of obligation to the world to enforce justice, which sometimes does not occur. But I think that's, that's a position that we actually have to interact with when we're dealing with the Bible. Sure, there's certain authors who say, who proclaim God's faithfulness and righteousness and God's dedication throughout the Bible, but then you have counter testimony as well. I And I think Walter Bergerman in his Theology of the Old Testament, he lays this out pretty well, which he talks about testimony and counter testimony. I think those are his categories. He lays out a bunch of instances in which there's texts that go against the grain. There's a text that go against these broad declarations and uh, they're pretty striking texts and they're, they're pretty hard to ignore what's going on. There, there's, a, there's a tension in the Bible when it comes to how these things are classified and categorized. And that's, I, again, I, the Bible does, is not talking metaphysics. And so when it calls God good, or if it calls God faithful or something like this, it doesn't mean there's a metaphysical on-off switch that either he's faithful or he's not faithful. These these are general categorizations. And so I could say, my little girl is silly. That doesn't mean she's silly 100% of the time. She might get hurt and she might cry or something. She's not being silly in that moment. But I categorize her as silly because that's my normal experience with her. It's a categorization rather than a metaphysics, right? She could grow out of being silly. That's something little girls could, I don't, can they do? I, I don't, I don't know if little girls can grow out of being silly. Uh, so may, maybe, maybe that's a metaphysical absolute. Little girls will be silly. Uh, they, they are so silly. So it's, uh, for example, God appears to take responsibility when he repents of mating, having made Saul king. And one thing I pointed out in the debate is, uh, let's, let's just scroll up to it. It's, God changes his mind, even on very firm declarations, what God says he's going to do. God still changes his mind when the people pray. And that's something that's just not dealt with in traditional classical omniscience. God says he's going to do something. He's definite about that. And then the people pray and he changes his mind anyways. And so this is in the promised land. I, I write that, uh, the people, this is the cycle of apostasy, very famous in Judges, in uh, Joshua. The people forget God. God inflicts punishment. They cry out in prayer. God forgives. The cycle repeats. At one point, God is fed up and says he'll no longer forgive. The people pray anyways. God forgives. So God says, I'm not going to forgive you this time. You've done this. to you've. You know, it's like an abusive husband. It's like you always say you're going to change. And then you just go right back into this cycle. So I'm done. I'm over with you guys. I'm cutting you off. No more saving. They pray and he forgives them and returns them anyways. It's 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 a reoccurring motif that God's mercy, his forgiveness, his, his empathy overrules sometimes his better judgment. Maybe it would have been better for 
him to abandon these people, maybe start again anew, maybe do a Moses situation where you start a new nation through Israel. But uh, he seems to genuinely have cares for his people that override what he thinks might be a better outcome. Soft NT likes writes, when Hezekiah prayed not to die after God says he is about to die. Yeah, and God changes things. You're going to die. Here, here's one thing that I was thinking about that verse. It's it, it's probably not faded, faded. God's probably not killing him. Yeah, it's probably not God saying you're going to die right now. I'm going to kill you. It's a faded event. It's probably more like likely that, yeah, you just know this person's going to die. And so you could tap into like circumstances that are going on. Hey, you're real sick. Uh, this is going to kill you. You're going to die. And God extends his his lifetime, right? Adds on 14 years. And I don't think God's killing him at the end of 14 years either. I, there's There seems to be some sort of knowledge of what I have to do to keep this guy alive for 14 years. And I don't think that that means he's immortal either. Like he could set himself on fire and run around like a man on fire because he's not going to die for 14 years. I think there was a cartoon mocking that idea, you know, some like uh, SBMC cartoon where an angel gives a guy immortality and he sets himself on fire, runs around. Um, but I don't think that's what's happening either. Uh, the future is flexible. There, there's changing prognosis. There's there's changing. Uh, what What's the word that's used? There's there's changing destinies or changing. Yeah, destinies, I think, is a, a good good word to use for it, that we were, were pushed in certain trajectories in our life. And so you could know the future in that sense. There seems to be a way that people tap into this mystical, magical knowledge of what the future holds for us, like in dreams. Um, you're able to tap into what the future holds, but it doesn't mean it's a metaphysical certainty. It doesn't mean it's this type of known knowledge with a truth value, these things can be subverted. And often people use dreams about the future to subvert possible shortfalls that, that are going to occur because of these dreams. But it's not obvious that these people who are having dreams about the future within the Bible, that they're being seeded by God, that God's seeding those dreams. So sometimes it's explicit, uh, but it's not always explicit that that's what ha is happening rather than some sort of connection with something beyond us. So it's like, you will not recover. That's what it says in, in regards to Hezekiah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, he recovers. So often in the Bible, you'll see this. God says, uh, I'll no longer forgive you. The people will repent. He says, okay, I'm going to forgive you. It's just like almost instant reversals. <laughs> God tells Ezekiel, he says, hey, you're going to do all these things and you're going to cook your food with human poop. And Ezekiel says, I always eat kosher and I it's, uh, human poop is going to violate that kosher. And God says, okay, you can use cow poop instead. Instant reversal due to prayer. You find instant reversals all the time in the Bible. So it's not like even if God says, let's say Daniel was written well before the events that it describes. It's not like just because it's written out like that, that it's a metaphysical necessity that those things happen. And we can see this play out in Revelation. In Revelation, it's written as if the temple is still standing. Um, that this this future being described is not a future with the destruction of the temple. The Revelation is not written in 100 AD. It's written before 70 AD. The temple still standing. It's it's not this dispensationalist claim that 
oh, the temple is going to be rebuilt. That's not what they had in mind. If you look at the numbers, the numerology that they use, it, there's a lot of stuff pointing to Nero. And so Revelation does appear to be a delayed prophecy, a prophecy that was intended to happen within the lifetime of the hearers and was pushed back due to factors that uh, either God considered, maybe like First uh, Peter 3, I think it is, where he talks about God's delay in coming back. He says it's not because God is just negligent. It's because God wants all to come to repentance. For this reason, he delayed this apocalypse, this end time. A lot of apocalyptic texts within the Bible, if you consolidate them, put them together, compare them to one another, there's going to be contradictions kind of between them. And so you kind of get the sense that this apocalyptic literature is not uh, like a TV screen of the future, but rather a rough estimate of what's likely to happen, what an imaginative scenario. I think the imaginative scenario language is used I think by Golden Gay, actually, in his commentary on Daniel, that this is more of like an a, imaginative scenario of what might occur in the future times rather than like a TV viewing screen prophecy, crystal ball, like Wicked Witch, Witch of the West just peering into the future or something like that. So I think there's a lot to that. So going back to my opening statement, my goal was to frame the debate. This is what we're talking about. This is what the debate rises or falls upon is if classical omniscience is argued by the biblical authors. And I tried to stress that over and over again in the debate so that the audience gets into their mind that if he's not actively proving that this is the case, that the biblical authors hold this type of omniscience in mind, then I win the debate. He really has to make a positive case because he can't just attack one or two open theist readings of specific verses and then assume that uh, the the authors had his idea of omniscience in mind. He, in order to win the debate, he actually has to make a positive case that, number one, any of the biblical authors has this idea. That's why I asked him the question. I said, "What what what's your best proof text for the claim that God has innate, ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, unfalsifiable knowledge of all propositions? And it seemed like a dud. It seemed like his proof text that he claimed as his best proof text didn't actually prove that. And so using that line over and over again, it was trying to reinforce the audience that if he doesn't prove that, he doesn't win the debate. He has to make an, a positive case. He can't just disprove my case because my case is any case that doesn't fit this definition. It actually gives me an advantage in the debate because typically positive claims are going to be harder to prove because they're more absolute. But in this case, his claim was more absolute. His claim was one in which a single counter example would disprove his entire system. So he's going second in a debate and he's proving an affirmative claim. And uh, it really sets people up for losing a debate uh, just, just based on perspective, right? And so uh, not, not a good position to be in, especially with the dearth and the breadth of biblical passages that talk about open theism. And so the, the debates over whether open theism is biblical, I quote two biblical scholars, both of them saying, yeah, the omniscience described in the Bible is not this classical omniscience. Two scholars, they know the Bible. Uh, Petazzoni, 
he surveys ancient religions. Uh, he, he goes over all these proof texts in the Bible for omniscience and talks about what type of omniscience it is. It's not classical omniscience. I talk about different ways God acquires knowledge, which came back to help me in the questions and answers because someone said, oh, you claim that God only knows things through seeing. No, that's that's not actually my claim. Um, that's one of the ways God knows things, but there's, there's a bunch of different ways that God knows things. And it's, Again, it's not their their type of knowledge that is a proposition on some so, or like some truth value on some proposition in the ether. It's a loose knowledge. It's a falsifiable knowledge. That's what knowledge is. It doesn't have to actually attain. So I point out that if any one of my proof texts by itself is true, open theism is true. And then I talk about, I, I set them up for watching how the proof texts are used and how they're talked about. It's important to get this out before his opening statement, because then I could frame how people digest. If people are listening to the 10 minutes, it seems pretty short, but there's a lot to digest. So if they're listening to me, they'll understand what to look for and pick out in his opening statement to see how it's interacting with what I'm claiming and what's good and bad evidence. So then I walk us through the Bible. Um, I, I thought I had done this somewhere else before, and so I did a bunch of searches on my own work, but I couldn't find it. So I had to recreate the story of the Bible basically from memory. And so I, I think I did a pretty decent job talking about major events within the Bible, the biblical story, and uh, God's various attempts to reach humanity. And I think it's actually pretty powerful the different ways God has tried to attempt to reach humanity and has failed every single time. Humanity just doesn't listen to God. They don't want God. They, they reject God. They turn against him and he keeps trying new things. And that, that this, that's the entire story of the Bible. So is open theism biblical? Yeah. God is struggling to try to find something that works to reach mankind. That that's, that's the plot of the Bible. The plot of the Bible is literally open theism is open theism biblical? It is the plot. PMA says, every position will have apparent contradictions given that language is the way it is, but usually there are conceivable ways to harmonize apparent tension. Every individual has to utilize discernment. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I could talk about delayed punishment. Delayed punishment is a really interesting concept that the God's going to punish a people, but then something happens in which God says, I'm going to punish you later after this certain individual dies, something like that. It doesn't typically fall under normal understandings of justice and consequences to have a delayed punishment that skips a generation and then attacks a brand new generation. But often in the Bible, you'll see collective punishments. You'll say, see delayed judgments. You'll see God doing interesting things with justice that might not it might not soothe our sense of what justice and righteousness are and that was one of the the concepts that came out pretty prominently in the debate was uh, what standards of justice does God have can God be blamed for anything um, can people in the Bible blame God for anything have they blamed God for anything? And uh, in what way are, is God being blamed and how objective or subjective are, are these blames? And so it might have detracted from the subject of the debate 
a little bit because it's it's I'm not I'm not talking mainstream open theist views here, but uh, I do think it's important to talk out these concepts in some sort of format, maybe not debate format. He yeah he, he was talking about some of the questions he didn't get to that he would have got to if I had answered in different ways, and some of those questions did sound interesting to to try to introduce into evidence. And so every time someone asks you a question, your response introduces things into evidence to be used later. You can reference it later in the questions and answers. You could use it to uh, add points that you weren't able to get to in your intro or even in your rebuttal. You could you could slip those additional points in if, if they're asking you a wide variety of questions. So getting bogged down on one particular question is probably It'd probably be good if you don't know what you're doing and you're you're just blustering through all the questions and and you're stalling for time. But if in a robust open theist debate where open theist actually knows open theism and knows the Bible, the more questions, the better, because the more opportunity you have to respond to their talking points, the more opportunities you have to introduce evidence. So I, I would prefer more rapid subject changes. Than, than that focused interaction. Right, I'm confident that like uh, in the Q&A afterwards when the audience is asking question, it's, it's, it's a great time and opportunity to point out things that weren't mentioned in the debate to add additional points for consideration. It's just, I like questions and answers. You could interact with people, you could answer their questions and they, they'll probably walk away because a lot of these people never dealt with open theism or an open theist. A lot of people don't know the context of Isaiah 40 through 48. And so when you explain the context to them, they're like, they sit back and they they consider, they're like, yeah, that does sound like what's going on in that text. It's, it's something I haven't considered before because I've been propagandized my entire life and I've treated the Bible like, a proof text. You just you just kind of scroll through the Bible. You find a text that kind of says your theology, and then you just state it like, "Yeah, this is my proof for my theology." It's like they haven't read the context and considered the circumstances going on. And once the circumstances are explained, it doesn't quite mean what they've been led to believe. Yeah, they they've been basically lied to in proof text. Yeah, they they just hear people quote verses and then they repeat them. They don't know the context. So, so that's why when people bring up Balaam's quote that God's not a man that he should repent, I always start by asking who's talking. They they they, they never know. It's like it's like I'm not trying to trap you. Um yeah, the verse means what it says and I can affirm the verse, but the fact that you don't know the context probably means you don't understand what's actually being communicated. And the idea is that God's going to be true to Israel even if he's being propositioned by foreign kings to turn against Israel, God's not a man that uh, he's going to change his mind about being true to Israel. Uh, so we'll go idol killer. The Calvinist held God decreed every evil act, but feigned piety when he said God was responsible. That is actually pretty funny. Uh, no, I, I wasn't in that mindset. He didn't, he didn't come off to me as like a strong Calvinist. He seemed to be like a quasi open theist who believes that God just interacts with people with free will in some sort of, uh, you know, a pre-calculated pre way. And so he didn't come off as a Calvinist, but normal Calvinists do ascribe every evil act to God. And then they, they'll get really mad if you say God's taking responsibility 
or his actions in Genesis six. It's, 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 it's a really funny concept. Oh yeah. Idle color says, I mean the ones in the chat. Oh, I'm sure I need to go back over that chat. Just read what these people are saying to me during the cross examinations. I'm, I'm sure I'm positive. I triggered them something awful. They're, they're hearing phrases that they've never heard before. And, uh, <laughs> they're probably very angry. And he says, there are some that feign piety better than others, but they're trying pretty hard nonetheless. Yeah, the feigned piety. Oh, our views are so much superior to yours. Okay, sure, I, I'm sure. I, I guess that's true. I guess that means your views are correct and mine are incorrect somehow. I, That's an argument, maybe. Uh, no. I like this. At one point, God gets tired of repenting and declares destruction against Israel. I think that's in Ezekiel. I, I didn't put the verse notes for all th this whole thing. I, sh I should go index them, but I thought it would clutter up the screen too much. I could have put them as like notes or something like that, but uh, I decided not to. Uh, it was a chance, a gamble, because if he came back and he said, hey, where's this particular thing said? I'd have to just like start Googling to get all my references together. So it was a gamble and the gamble seems to have paid off on just doing a narration rather than uh, fully noted opening and declares destruction against Israel. You know, God is weary of repenting. So if you go into, I think it's like the ESV or the New King James and do a search on weary of repenting, it'll pull straight up. And that's when I don't remember proof texts. You just remember a phrase or something from the proof text and it usually comes pretty easy. I'm not good with numbers and references. If I do know a reference is because I've just referenced it so many times it's just ingrained in my mind, but I'm not typically good at pulling up immediate references in my mind. And another point, God decides to forget Israel's sin for his own sake. That's in Isaiah. That's within the context of Isaiah 40. And so during my Isaiah debate, Deuteronomy Isaiah, he says, oh, do you believe God can forget things? I'm like, well, yeah, Isaiah might. It's, it's, it's a possibility we have to consider because this debate's not about what I believe. It's about what the Bible states. And it reads here that God is going to forget their sins for his own sake, right? So maybe he's talking, maybe Isaiah is talking about actual forgetting of sins. And that was pretty triggering to like James White. Uh, toilet Bowl Earth says, what debate? The debate that just happened tonight on the gospel truth is open theism biblical. Yeah, I think it was a good debate. And so I need to download it quick because these things tend to, I got some babies upstairs. I don't know, I hear that. These these things tend to disappear from the internet. So I'll probably have to go download that. Like Justin Wilson, Seventh Day Advocate guy, um, he had me on to talk. His whole channel was deleted. He kept talking about uh, vaccines and COVID. They, they scrapped them. YouTube just deletes channels. And so if I didn't download that interaction, that interaction would be gone. It, uh, it's just corrupt. So that's why I'm uh, I'm also trying to update Rumble to get all my videos on Rumble because you just can't trust uh, the the providers these days. You got to you got to diversify or else they'll just wipe you out. So I point out that Jesus is a contingency plan. Even Jesus's mission to Israel, he says I did not come but to the lost sheep of Israel. That doesn't play out. That doesn't pan out. Israel doesn't reform and become the priest nation. 
uh, the Gentiles have to be grafted in. Paul talks about this in Romans 9, 10, 11, typically quoted as Calvinist proof texts. The actual context is the Jews have failed and God is within his rights, within his prerogative to cut them off and graft in a new people. God has that ability because he's the one who decides these things. And so typically what's used as a Calvinist proof text is actually evidence against their position. It's God dealing with changing circumstances and declaring his right to do so. So I point out the language in uh, Romans, maybe by grafting in the Gentiles, God might save some Jews. Yeah, God might do it. it it's a contingency plan. The Gentiles were not grafted in for our own sake. It's not like God's like, okay, let's just graft in the Gentiles to this. Uh, we're being used as a tool. Like, uh, let's say there's there's a guy and a girl dating, and they kind of break up. And then the guy goes out with another girl who's like super attractive. He might not even be interested in that girl. He might be using her as a tool to make his prior girlfriend jealous. Because women, they feed on jealousy, and, and they like guys who other girls like. And so we're that, we're that girl. We're being used to make Israel jealous. And, and that way, maybe save some of Israel. It's a contingency plan. It's God dealing with the tool set he's been given. So then I point out that what, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a God who's either a person who responds, who listens, or else what's the other option? Greek philosophy, timeless, eternal, pure, uh, aseity, pure actualization. This is what uh, uh, they they call um, him being incommunicable, or this is him being transcendent. There, there's that video that I posted, the the Platonist invention of transcendence, in which Augustine. That was his big takeaway from Platonism is God's transcendence. And by God's transcendence, it means that he's not connected in any way to the material world. That's going to cause dependencies. God has to be outside this realm in the state of uh, pure simplicity, ineffability, acidity, uh, pure actuality, those types of concepts. That's what he got from the Platonists, and he readily admits it. And so in the closing, I bring this up. I bring this up that this is these are inventions by people like Augustine. And they thought the Bible was absurd. What about the Bible did they think was absurd? It's not like guesswork. We're explained throughout. God having a body was one of the big ones. God having members and God having a hand or something like that. That that really triggered the Platonists. They really didn't like that. But also God being in a state of pure actuality, pure simplicity. That if God wasn't that that would create deficiencies that they think are absurd. That would create degradation in the divine. And that just it, it wasn't acceptable to people like Augustine. So they said, the Bible is absurd. Guess what? Then Ambrose comes on the scene and he says, hey, the, the text kills, but the spirit gives light. Read these in light of Platonism and you can accept the Bible. I kind of made a little dig. I had to rewrite this on the fly because I thought he's actually going to be more hostile to me. And so... Uh, Make yourself bigger, Chris. They want to see my face. He wants to see my mustache. So I, I was teaching Sunday school on Sunday, and uh, as a bunch of bunch of second grader girls, and the, the only thing they could talk about the whole time was shaving my mustache. And so 
Uh, they got a kick out of it. That's pretty funny. I've never had a mustache before. Time, time, to, time to make a mustache. And so Mark writes, Christopher, an interesting note. The nation of Israel actually publishes Hebrew New, the Hebrew New Testament for the Israel Israelis in their military. This would have been unthinkable in the days of antiquity. That is that is pretty interesting. The whole point of the Messiah begins with God telling Adam because. You'll, you'll probably have to expound on that. Uh, I'm not uh, picking up on the reference exactly. <laughs> Idol said, Idol Killer says, Bro, you're working hard to make my Matt Slick debate beard look good. I would like a handlebar mustache, like, like, not like one of those villainy, squirrely ones, but kind of like the Air Force pilot ones. If you can type in like Air Force mustache, there's like a famous pilot guy who had a mustache that he wore in defiance of Air Force standards, things like that. I think that looks pretty, that looks like a very nice mustache. <laughs> Adam says, how can you say that about woman? You're such a misogynist. It was really funny on the church split. Um, I was trolling a thread and these people are like, what do you think about uh, female pastors? I said, oh, female pastors are okay as long as you don't mind sermons that are one standard deviation on average below average IQ. And, and, and people are getting mad at me. It was just a joke. Female pastors are fine. People like Christine Hayes are, are great individuals and I'll listen to them all day. But it's fun fun to trigger people, especially with science. Science. That's that's funny. So I said, are we ashamed of the Bible, right? Do we have to read the Bible in light of Platonism to accept it? Can we just accept what the Bible says? And this is this is an honest plea that I was making. It's like, I don't want to have bad intellectual integrity. Integrity is pretty important to me. I don't want to be a fraudster. Right, I don't want to uh, do things for societal praise or something like that, or for personal acceptance or emotional security. It's like shouldn't shouldn't the truth take priority over all this? It's it's just how we we should live our life. I mean, sometimes practicality forces into us into some tricky situations, but it's not that's not how we want to live, right? So intellectual integrity should should be our prioritization over all else, right? I got to go to sleep, Idol Killer writes. <laughs> Jeff says, uh, and he's in an army uniform. He says, I think the army mustache is better, but I am biased. I'd have to look up uh, army regs. I think I've looked up um, their mustache standards. Uh, uh, their ear standards, I think they allow fairly long sideburns down to the ear hole opening. So which is fine. I don't know if the Air Force standards and Army are that much different, but <laughs> good times. But the Air Force mustache I was referencing was not in regs, and it was purposely worn by a colonel in defiance of mustache regs. And so if you watch, what's what's the miniseries? It's a fantastic miniseries, Generation Kill. It was on HBO, and it was about the first Gulf War. And it's a very realistic look at what, war is actually like, like, like I've been to Iraq and my Iraq experience was not like that situation or anything like that. Um, but uh, generation kill was just like, most of war is sitting around waiting for something to happen. And when anything does happen, it's like quick and then over with right away. Um, there's a lot of, uh, just tension that builds up and the interpersonal relationships go certain places. There's 
incompetence at various levels. Uh, just a very good series. Where am I going with this? Oh yeah, the mustaches. There's there's a scene where one of the first sergeants, yeah, uh, he's walking around and he's demanding everyone shave their mustaches into like little Hitler stashes, saying everyone's out of regs. And uh, the series reveals that his purpose in this is so that the people gripe about him rather than something else. He's creating some sort of outlet for their frustration with this war by enforcing a standard way, way more than it actually needs to be enforced. And so probably a good sign of, it's good that it was written into this story. I don't know if it's coming from a, a real plot point or something that actually happened, but uh, it's, it's a good exercise or thought experiment in leadership, how to handle discontent, how to handle people's expectations, how to give people outlets in adverse circumstances. It's, it's a very good series. <laughs> Adam says, dude, you've been hiding a few months while growing any kind of facial hair, but especially a mustache, took everything in me not to call it a pedostache in the bait chat. Like uh, I, was, I was talking to the second graders and like, I mustache you a question. And they're just like, ah, dad jokes. They're terrible. But uh, it's good. It's getting longer. I don't know. We'll see what, what goes on there. So that, that was my main document, my outline. And so I did have to have a document for the debate that had contingencies, like, like common go-to verses and common go-to responses. And uh, for this, I used a lot of common counterproof texts. And by counterproof texts, I mean it's phrases and uh, wording that are used uh, that they'll they'll say used against God that they'll claim it's their special metaphysics, but wording that actually is applied to humans and they they don't take it the same way. So it's kind of like a double standard. And so like let's let's say Genesis twelve. I added this during the debate because he actually brought up the Kayla incident with with Mo or not Mo was this <laughs> with David that uh, yeah if if Saul comes here the people of Kayla are going to turn you over and they're going to kill you and he used it as some sort of proof text for God knowing all possibilities even possibilities that don't materialize well guess what in Genesis 12 the same thing happens but not with God but with uh, Abraham he says when he, he's about to enter Egypt he said to Sarah his wife I know you're a woman beautiful in appearance and when the Egyptians see you they'll say this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. So he's not talking about this sort of knowledge of the future that's absolute and certain. It's not talking about ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, unfalsifiable, innate knowledge. It's just normal speech. When you read it in context of a human being, you just read it and say, oh yeah, we understand what that's saying. Uh, but when it's read in relation to God, our our metaphysics take over. They're, they're like, wow, this... This might, this might be a proof text for my belief. Oh, let's talk about this. Oh, wow, let's use this. So it's it's complete double standard. It's a special pleading that I tried to call out in the debate using the same phrases and the same ideas applied to God and man, and taking them in completely different ways and just assuming it means your metaphysics. If your metaphysics are true, there should be some sort of biblical treatise on those metaphysics. You shouldn't be just grabbing random phrases and applying unequal standards to those. Oh, because this is about God, this is my special metaphysics. And not yours, mind you. Mind you, it's not yours. It definitely means mine. How? Well, because it's about God, so obviously it's about my metaphysics. 
Isaiah 40. Oh, we actually got to that during the debate. So I put general omniscience claims in which uh, different people are said to know all things or have perfect understandings. Omnipotence claims, omnipotence claims, in which the people, nothing the people propose will be withheld from them. Imagine if that's applied to God, they'll claim some sort of metaphysics or something like that. But this is God talking about people, you know, determinism. There's certain kings that made Israel sin. Let's let's say there's a verse about God, that God made someone sin or ma made someone do something. Be like, oh, this is my metaphysics. This is predestination. This is determinism. It's just normal language. The kings make Israel sin. How do they do that? By setting precedents, by leading in certain directions, by creating the culture, right? That's making them sin. It's, it's not a metaphysics thing. Immutability. The people don't change. Huh. They don't change and they don't fear God. This is a lament. The people aren't like metaphysically immutable or anything like that. It's just a lament. Yet these guys are stubborn. They don't change. Timelessness. This was, I was going to, I was trying to put in my opening some anecdotes about the Chris date debate, which a lot of funny things happened. He tried to prove text timelessness with the same phrase that's used about man. And when I called him out on it, he doubled down. And then a Hebrew scholar wrote in defense of me. And when I posted it to Chris Date, he blocked me. He probably blocked me because he hates me because I posted a picture of him with like a tiny face. And uh, he sent all his minions to come complain on my YouTube channel. What are you doing editing photos to make his face small? Yeah, well, your guy's not a very good human being. He doubled down on his proof text. He didn't consider alternatives. He's a pundit. He's not a scholar. It's you have zero intellectual integrity. We already talked a little bit about intellectual integrity. It's like, I can't stand people that don't have intellectual integrity. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Treat you like you're a scholar, treat you with seriousness. I'm not going to do that. You're a pundit. You're pu you don't care about possible and probable translation. You're looking for proof texts. Like, I'm not going to treat you how you think you deserve. So eternal... I, this one, I triggered a Calvinist something awful. He, he's like, well, eternal must mean my metaphysics. It might've been eternal life or something we're talking about. But I posted this about the eternal mountains, which were scattered. He says, oh, that's just hyperbole. Obviously, that's just flowerly language. Yes, obviously your use of the word is not hyperbole. And, and obviously this other one is brilliant. Thank you. Gold star. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Thank you. I run into so many dishonest uh, people with disintegrity. I have a phrase here, bloodshed from the beginning. So if this was brought up, that this idea from the foundation of the world, this specific phrase is used elsewhere in Luke 1150. And in that context, you could kind of see how the prepositional phrase is actually being used. It's not being used as the blood was shed at the foundation of the world, or this was eternally shed blood or anything like that. Uh, the pre prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world means from the foundation of the world till now, you add up all the blood that's been shed. And that's what we're talking about. And so in Revelation, when we're talking about names written since the foundation of the world, names not written since the foundation of the world, uh, what that's ref in reference to, that prepositional phrase is being used in the same way. It's the same phrase. It's being used in the same phrase that you take all the names not written 
from the foundation of the world till now. And that's who they're talking about in context. Basically, it means whoever's not a Christian, that's the group we're talking about currently in this verse. And so then I put a revelation verse because <clears throat> you never know. You never know what to expect. I think it was Doug in there asking questions about the book of life, but the book of life is very commonly one of their talking points. And so you need to have something on hand to just kind of talk about that pro riso pro gnosco. I had some resources there, the Jews, Progonoso, Paul from the beginning. It doesn't mean that they're like timeless and eternal and have this ungenerated knowledge. It just means at some prior point, they had a relationship with Paul. That's what Progonosco means. It's not foreknowledge. It's not the American concept of foreknowledge, knowing something before it happens. It's knowing someone prior to right now. I have foreknowledge of my daughter because uh, she grew up with me. And so I've been around her a lot. So I've known her before. That, that's, that's what foreknowledge is. The same way, uh, Pro Rizo, I have the quote by Clement, Clement of Alexandria, in which he uses this, I think it's Clement of Alexandria. It's got to be Clement of Alexandria, in which he uses this to uh, talk about how God at a, not God, Jesus at a prior time, a prior point of time, had answered a question. So this is predestination, determining something at some prior point in time, usually the time that you're talking about. And so he says that Jesus was talking to the Jews and they said, hey, hey, who's your neighbor? And uh, he did not, in the same way as the Jews, specify predestined the blood relation. So the Jews predestined blood relation. That means the Jews at some prior point in time answered that blood relation was the answer to this question, who is your neighbor? Instead, he predestines that it's just anyone, you know, uh, everyone's our neighbor. I got text about I'm not a man and uh, I am who I am. If uh, we start talking about that, Paul famously says, ego ha or Amy ha Amy, I am who I am. It's not like a metaphysics claim. And uh, if he goes to Exodus 3, 14, um, I definitely could talk in detail about what that actually means in context and how it's in the future text and how the better Greek Greek Old Testaments that were floating around at the time of Jesus, they did have it as the future tense. And it's about God's relationship to Israel at that moment and their future relationship developing. It's not it's not about timeless eternity or anything like that. So that was my strategy. I put the questions on the same page. Probably if I was to do it over, I'd put the questions on the same page as the outline because I was flipping back and forth and sometimes I wasn't at the right spot that I needed to be. But uh, I think my preparations were pretty time efficient. I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time preparing for this debate. I just kind of threw some things together Within the last week, I didn't. I didn't do any preparation before this last week. It was like on, on uh, Friday or Saturday. I was like, I probably should write my opening statement. Uh, that's probably a good thing to do for a debate. That's like in two days. And so then I, I wrote it out, and then I just read it a few times. I made some corrections, and then I put together the, these notes as I thought about it. And I was still finalizing things um, throughout the day. It's like, okay, maybe he'll say this. And so we'll have to add this little thing. Maybe then, then you have to make sure you got enough questions to 
to go over the 20 minute time frame. You don't want to go short in questions and be running out of questions. So just make sure you have a whole bunch of extra ones. TB9K says that Bible summary you gave was great. Well, thank you. I I tried. I was like, this, this is probably going to be probably the best part of the debate because it's just going to point to the overall plot of the Bible. The Bible has a plot. It has rising and falling action. It has twists and turns. It has has everything we'd expect from literature, a novel. It's it's the story of the Bible. And so I, th I think it was pretty powerful. And I think it probably triggered quite a few Calvinists in, in, in the delivery. I have to go back and read the comments. I still don't. I haven't read all the comments. And uh, I, I do enjoy reading what people are saying and and getting pleasure out of people's anger. Anger. I got I got a message before the debate. Like, please cancel this debate. Uh, yeah, you're a heretic and going to hell and you're going to bring people with you. It's like I said, hey, that's pretty mean of God to do, to write the Bible from an open theist perspective and then send people to hell for believing it. Right? <laughs> Jeff says they're triggered all right. Oh, it's fantastic. So the pain and suffering of bad people make, makes me happy. And so even in the Bible where it's like you're going to bathe your feet in the blood of your enemies. And people are like, this is such a bloody and terrible passage. It's like, I empathize. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel good to bathe in the blood of your enemies, to take them down and to see their destruction. It's like, uh, we're, we're going to kill all your children. We're going to come through and, and wreak revenge against you in a bloody way. I don't, I don't think those are bad texts. I don't think, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I empathize with it. I say, yeah, yeah, I'd want revenge too. These people uh, who ruin your life, who destroy you, uh, who try to dominate you, and uh, they, they've caused so much pain and suffering. I want bad things to happen to them. When Trump said, Trump, when he was uh, first running for office, he does this A-B testing thing where he like throws out a concept and then see how people react. And then he'll He'll walk it back and then suggest something else if it goes bad or double down if it goes good. He said, these terrorists, we're going to hunt them down and we're going to kill them. And everyone's like, yay. He's like, and we're going to hunt down and kill their families. And everyone's like, ah, I don't I don't know about killing their families. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. But uh, alrighty, I think that's enough for uh, our post-debate review. Uh, it's, uh, it's just kind of my thoughts about what happened and what we discussed. I think it was a pretty good debate and uh, I need to download it before it disappears from the internet. Definitely. But I think I got in a lot of good points and I think we got a lot of good things on record. And I think uh, even uh, open theists have some considerations to take away just, just for refining their own views and uh, understanding the variance of open theism out there. I think the interaction went really well. The questions were really well formed. You always try to give someone a layup. It doesn't always work. I've, I I tried to give Jesse Morrell a layup when he was debating Matt Slick. I said, what does thought to do mean in the passage in Jeremiah 18? And Matt Slick kind of blew it off. And then Jesse Morrell didn't speak to it. He just kind of like passed the question. I gave you a layup, dude. You can point out Matt Slick is completely out on left field about just understanding what this passage means. And so I, I did see some layup questions, which were great. And then there was definitely good questions 
from even the Calvinists and their questions indicated lack of familiarity, lack of interaction with open theists. And so I thought that was interesting. So they're probably actually getting new information about open theist takes on different passages. They didn't seem malicious. There's probably some malicious ones like uh, the guy who's like, would you consider open theist semi-deist? Okay, maybe. <laughs> we could do that. That's fine. <laughs> uh, PA says, yeah, it was a good debate. You did a good job. Well, thanks. But uh, those are my impressions. So uh, I think I think it went well. And so maybe there there'll be some follow-up. I don't see my friend who is calling me a heretic in the in the chat. I said, I told him in at the first part, I logged in for like five minutes before the debate started. And he's like, you're a heretic. You should repent. I said, yeah, come on my channel. We'll talk about it. But tell me why I'm a heretic. I would like to know what biblical reasons you have that I'm so terrible. I'm so awful. I like me. So I don't know. And maybe there's some reasons God doesn't like me. I'd like to, I'd like to know if what those reasons are, why God doesn't like me, because yeah, I don't know, I like me. But uh, all right, we'll end there. Uh, thanks everyone for showing up and uh, the interaction, I think is pretty good.